Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Legendary race doctor Sid Watkins had a premonition as he sat in a medical car at the side of a racetrack in Imola, Italy. The esteemed neurosurgeon had saved numerous lives in his 30 years as the head of the Formula One medical team. And at that moment, he turned to his driver and said, I've got a feeling there's going to be an awful accident. Minutes later, a call came in on his radio. His help was urgently needed at a very narrow and bumpy corner of the track, the Tamborello Corner. Instantly, he knew it was his friend and one of the greatest drivers of all time, Ayrton Senna. I'm Kathy Kinzora. On this episode of History of the 90s, we look back at the 1994 San Marino Grand Prix, a cataclysmic weekend that shattered lives of many and permanently reshaped Formula One racing. This is more than a story about fast cars. It's a story about cutthroat competition, money, deceit, love, tragedy, and the search for justice. To understand what happened on F1's darkest weekend, we need to look back at the history of the sport. Formula One is easily the most prestigious racing series on Earth. It features the world's best drivers, most sophisticated cars, which are basically million-dollar machines engineered by rocket scientists, and some of the most legendary racetracks. Formula One Grand Prix racing became popular in the 1950s, showcasing young men driving fast cars in exotic locations like Buenos Aires and Monte Carlo. Stars like Sterling Moss and Juan Manuel Fangio were thrilling to watch as they battled it out in their cigar-shaped wingless cars. At Ride Young, Fangio is in the lead in front of Castellotti and Moss in third place. And then the field. It was both glamorous and dangerous. In the early days of the F1 World Championship, death was almost a regular occurrence. Between 1952 and 1962, 23 drivers were killed in accidents. The drivers' lives were on the line at every race. It's believed because of the high death rate, there was a very unique camaraderie among drivers in this golden era of F1. One driver from the 50s said the fear of death made them have a better appreciation of life, and it led to many lasting friendships up and down the grid. By the 1980s and 90s, Formula One racing had changed dramatically. Fatalities were no longer common thanks to safety standards that were developed as the sport grew. In fact, leading into the deadly weekend in 1994, the last time an F1 driver had died during a race was 12 years earlier in 1982. Riccardo Paletti was killed at the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal in a horrible accident on the starting grid. That was also when they renamed the Montreal track to Circuit Gilles Villeneuve. Villeneuve is a Canadian racing icon. He died in May of that year during qualifying in Zolder, Belgium. And the Montreal track, just an hour away from where he was born, was where he won his first F1 race. 
In the 90s, you might remember that the Villeneuve name came back in the spotlight as his son Jacques won the Indy 500 in 1995, then made the jump to F1 in 96 and won the title in 97. Another thing that had changed by the 80s and 90s was camaraderie among drivers, thanks in part to one of the greatest rivalries of all time. In sports, there have been many legendary rivalries. Just think Ali versus Frazier, McEnroe versus Borg, or Magic Johnson versus Larry Bird. But few can compare to the battle between Ayrton Senna and Elaine Prost. That rivalry between the two of them is, is one of the best sports rivalries uh, across the board, uh, let alone in Formula One. That's Brendan Dunlop, sports broadcaster and lifelong F1 fan. He says the two drivers were polar opposites in many ways. A lot of it is that Ayrton Senna was so comfortable in his own skin. He was so supremely confident uh, and he really didn't care uh, what other people thought. Alain Prost wasn't as uh, secure in his, in his own skin. And uh, I think that that played into his actions a lot and into his rivalry and his relationship with, with Ayrton Senna. And, you know, obviously from a, a competitive standpoint, they both wanted to win. They both want to be the best. And I think that uh, Alain Prost you know, could see that Senna was a, a little bit better. In a, a lot of people's eyes, Ayrton Senna is one of the best race car drivers of, of all time. So I think Alain Prost uh, you know, wanted, wanted that pedestal all to himself and, and um, Senna came around and Prost can have that. Prost dominated Formula One in the early 80s, and the curly-haired Frenchman took his first championship in 1985, and then again in 86, both while driving for McLaren. Prost was popularly known as the professor because of his scientific and methodical approach to racing. He perfected an economic style. He started a race conservatively, took it easy on the brakes and tires, and then made a late race challenge. If Prost needed to finish, say, sixth in a race to maintain his championship lead, he would sit in sixth place, holding that position instead of pushing for a win and risk losing it all. Then there was Senna. He turned F1 into a contact sport. He put everything on the line each time he raced. Senna went flat out all the time, not even the rain would slow him down. You know, so he's the one who'll just go for it. You know, you give him a shopping cart and he'll just drive the wheels off it. That's Ibrar Malik, author of the book 1994, The Untold Story of a Tragic and Controversial F1 Season. He says Senna was thrilling to watch. There's lots of Senna fans out there because his skill was so obvious, you know. You watch any YouTube video of him and you really see him like manhandling the car and, you know, sparks are flying and... Senna was also straight out of Hollywood central casting. The handsome young Brazilian was often photographed with beautiful models and actors, water skiing or racing around town on a motorcycle. He grew up in Brazil, the privileged son of a wealthy businessman. And in the largest country in South America, he was basically a god. Not just for his racing skills though, also because of his deep commitment to giving back to a country struck by poverty and unrest. Senna was different from most other racers. He was deeply religious, and he spoke in a way that fans weren't used to. In 1988, he qualified in the pole position at Monaco. And during the qualifying lap, he famously said he no longer felt in control of the car in the normal way. 
Instead, he felt like he was in a different dimension. He didn't finish that race, but later that year, as he captured his first world title, Senna said that he saw the face of God as he crossed the finish line in Japan. The spiritual aspect of Senna seemed in stark contrast with the single-minded determination he had towards winning. But that was Senna, a man of contrasts. A ruthless racer and a gentleman, ferociously ambitious and deeply caring. At the time, a lot of people didn't view race car drivers as athletes. I'm sure there are some who still don't, but Brendan Dunlop says Senna played a big part in changing that view. He had a diet that athletes just didn't have at that time. He, you know, he removed red meat from his diet and he trained relentlessly um, in the off season. Uh, stories about his vacations, they had this beautiful beach house in, that he would spend months at. And then and the, the off seasons were so much longer back then than they, they are now. And he would be running 20 kilometers four or five times a week in the off season throughout his entire break just to be as physically fit and as ready for the season as possible. And it, it played a huge part in his success. And uh, I do think, uh, really, he, he was the, the trendsetter that, that made the outside world understand and believe that, that race car drivers were actually athletes. And I know that a lot of race car drivers that follow, you know, use him as, as the, the ultimate example of how the, the dedication and the hard work and the commitment, um, there's so much more of it off the track than there is on the track. Senna and Prost became McLaren teammates in 1988. McLaren dominated in the late 80s, and initially the pair had a mutual admiration for each other. At the end of the first season together, Senna beat Prost by three points to win the world championship, ending any warm feelings between the two on the track. Things came to a head in October 1989 at the Japanese Grand Prix. This race would become one of the most notorious in F1 history. It was the climax of Prost and Senna's tumultuous two-year rivalry as teammates at McLaren. Senna comes to a stop. Beyond his car is the red and white McLaren of Alain Prost, two men who do not like each other at all, but the only two men with a shot at the 1989 Formula One World Championship. Senna needed to finish ahead of Prost in the race to win the championship. With just six laps left in the race, Prost was leading Senna. But then in a desperate move, Senna tried to dive past Prost at a tight chicane. Then they locked wheels and both cars left the track. The worst of all possible circumstances. A collision between the teammates. You got a quick look. Prost was out of the race. Senna, on the other hand, was able to rejoin and win the race, securing the championship. But it wasn't over yet. In a controversial decision, Senna was disqualified for a rule infringement, handing the championship to Prost and ending any chance these two would ever be friends again. Mutual admiration turned into all-out hatred. The next year, Senna and Prost were once again locked in an intense fight for the championship, only this time they weren't teammates. Prost had left McLaren for Ferrari, and once again, they battled for the F1 title. This time, Senna was not going to be denied. In October 1990, things came to a head again at the Japanese Grand Prix. Prost needed to beat Senna and finish no lower than second place to secure the F1 championship. Senna started the race as the leader in pole position, while Prost was beside him in the second spot. The lights go! 
and Senna sprints away, but Alain Prost takes the lead. It's happened. Alain Prost has taken the advantage. Senna is trying to go through on the inside, and it's happened immediately. This is amazing. Senna goes off at the first corner, but what has happened to Prost? He has gone off too. Well, that is amazing. At the first corner, 10 seconds into the race, Senna took out Prost and secured his second F1 title. Prost said what Senna did was disgusting. He called the Brazilian driver a man without value. The following year, the troubles continued for Prost. He struggled with Ferrari in 1991, and for the first time in 10 years, he failed to win a single race. The Frenchman was very vocal about the situation and publicly blamed the Italian team for the dismal performance. As a result, Prost was fired before the end of the season. And Senna, well, he was riding high with McLaren. He captured his third F1 title in the 1991 season. But all of that changed the following year. Suddenly, the Williams-Renault team dominated F1. Rules were loose and money was flush, so many teams, including Williams, invested in research and development. And that led to some major technological advances. Williams, in particular, perfected something known as the active suspension system, which made their cars almost unbeatable. And I mean, literally, like, you know, me or you or anyone could step into that car and still win the championship. It was that dominant. Um, I think it was, there was a quote at the time that even a monkey could win the championship. As a result, Williams driver Nigel Mansell won the world championship in 1992. And then Senna's rival, Alain Prost, who had switched to Williams after sitting out the 92 season, won the 1993 championship title. At the end of the season, with his fourth championship under his belt, Prost announced his retirement. He had gotten wind that Ayrton Senna was about to join the Williams team, and there was no way Prost wanted to be teammates with his rival again. So at the end of the 93 season, as Prost retired, Senna made the move from McLaren to join the unbeatable Williams team. But things didn't go quite as Senna expected. That's because heading into the 94 season, F1 made some big changes. The rulemakers had got so concerned that Formula One had become too much of, you know, too dependent on technology rather than the drivers. So they changed the rules massively for 94 by taking away all of those driver aids, they called it, you know, traction control, ABS brakes and active suspension. As a result, Williams no longer had the dominant car, something that became very evident after the first two races of the season. You know, so Senna kind of went there in 94 thinking it was just going to be an easy cruise and collect, you know, championship. And then he was blown away at the first two races by, you know, Schumacher and Benetton, who were, they, and, you know, up until that point, they'd only won two races in something like three years. You know, so, and Schumacher was unknown. He wasn't like, you know, he wasn't the great driver that we all know today. He was, you know, he was quite young and, um, you know, he wasn't, no one knew how good he was basically. So, you know, and they had a lesser engine as well. You know, Senna and everyone in the paddock was confused just how Benetton, you know, could, because Senna was the best driver and, you know, going to the best car. So everyone was confused how, you know, Schumacher could, could suddenly, and Benetton could suddenly beat them so convincingly as well. 
Senna, and many others, were convinced that Michael Schumacher, a young German driver, was driving an illegal car. He believed Benetton had found a loophole in the new regulations, which allowed them to sidestep the rules about using driver's aids. This was on Senna's mind going into the fateful San Marino race weekend. He needed to beat Michael Schumacher. Recently, there have been reports that Senna had other issues he was dealing with that weekend, personal issues. Back in 2014, The Guardian reported that Senna's brother, Leonardo, was sent by the family from Brazil to convince him not to marry Adrian Gallisto. They met at the 1993 Brazilian Grand Prix, where Gallisto was working as an umbrella girl, and Senna and the young Brazilian model had been dating for over a year. Prior to Gallisto, Senna had a public romance with the extremely popular Brazilian TV star, Xuxa, who is basically the Brazilian Madonna. And he was also briefly married to his teenage sweetheart in 1981, but the marriage was dissolved in less than two years. Senna was normally very close with his family, but relationships had been strained since he began his romance with Gallisto. They did not approve, and this made him quite upset. Tensions were running high for Senna, and they were made worse by what happened next. At the San Marino Grand Prix on the afternoon of Friday, April 29th, 1994, Rubens Barrichello had a frightening accident in qualifying. After hitting a curb, his car was launched into the air and smashed into the debris fence. Barrichello was knocked unconscious in this spectacular crash, but amazingly, he only suffered a broken nose. The very next day, on Saturday, April 30th, another horrible accident. Roland Ratzenberger was fighting to qualify for only his second Grand Prix race. He accelerated hard in sixth gear when part of his car, believed to be a nose wing, became detached. Under normal circumstances, Ratzenberger's car could take the right-hand curve no problem. But without the nose wing, Ratzenberger was helpless as he lost control of the car and it slammed into the wall. And Ratzenberger has had a heavy, heavy shunt indeed. We're going just to see there's movement in the cockpit, but that is heavy impact on the left-hand side of Roland Ratzenberger. And again, marshals very quickly indeed. And I suspect that's the same part of the... What was left of the Simtech race car traveled 300 yards to Tosa Corner. Ratzenberger's head hung limply as the car finally came to a stop. Red flag once again all around the circuit. Doctors, marshals, fire attendants. The medical team desperately tried to revive him but it's believed the 190-mile-an-hour initial impact may have broken his neck. Ratzenberger, an easygoing, likable guy, was extremely popular among drivers. He had fought his way through the ranks while living a hand-to-mouth existence in an effort to fulfill his dream of being a Formula One driver. And now, Formula One was shocked. There hadn't been a death in the sport for 12 years. Ayrton Senna was deeply concerned. He knew both drivers. Barrichello was from Brazil, and Roland Ratzenberger was a friend. 
Senna was so shaken up that he chose not to run a qualifying lap that day. He still grabbed pole position for a record 65th Grand Prix based on his speed from Friday's trials. And so it seemed he was ready to take on the San Marino track on race day, May 1st, 1994. Sunday morning before heading to the track, Senna called his girlfriend, Adrienne Gallistow. She told the Daily Mail in 2014 that Senna sounded upset. He said his head wasn't right. Gallistow had never heard him like this before, and she implored him not to race that day. But Senna said he couldn't pull out. He loved racing. It was his life. In a tribute to Ratzenberger, Senna placed an Austrian flag in his car. He planned to wave it as he crossed the finish line first. He wanted to share the moment of triumph with his fellow driver, who would never have the chance to taste victory. The San Marino Grand Prix race started under a dark cloud. A massive start line pileup saw a wheel fly into the crowd and several spectators in the grandstand were injured. It was as if this weekend was cursed. And sadly, the worst was yet to come. The race restarted and ran under a yellow flag with Senna leading the pack for four laps behind the slow moving safety car. When the cars were finally released, Senna continued to lead ahead of Schumacher and Gerhard Berger. Then on lap seven, the second lap at racing speed, Senna entered the Tamborello corner. This was a renowned part of the track that had seen many crashes in the past. The corner was very bumpy and had dangerously little room between the track and a concrete wall which protects the Santerno River that runs behind it. As Senna went into the Tamborello, his Williams race car suddenly veered off course and slammed into the wall. He entered the corner at 192 miles per hour and then braked hard, downshifting twice to slow down before impacting the wall at 131 miles per hour. Michael Schumacher now, and Senna! My goodness, I just saw him plunge off to the right and Senna has joined Petro Lamy and JJ Leto in a shattered motor car. You can see the debris on the right. What on earth happened there? I don't know whether it was a sudden loss of downforce for some reason, but Senna is still in the car. It means to say, of course... Horrified fans watched as Senna remained lifeless in the cockpit of his car. Course officials stood by, waiting for medical personnel to arrive. It felt like time stood still. Though it seemed excruciatingly slow, medical aid was there in about 60 seconds. Rescuers struggled for two minutes as they attempted to remove Senna from the car. Finally, he was freed and he was laid on the ground. F1 race doctor Sid Watkins was at his side. Watkins, who was also a close personal friend, said as soon as he saw Senna, he knew the injury was fatal. A suspension part had pierced Senna's helmet. He was likely killed almost almost instantly. Watkins had also treated Roland Ratzenberger and Rubens Barrichello during the previous two days. Before the start of Sunday's race, he had a heart-to-heart with Senna, who looked to the doctor as a father figure. 
Watkins told Senna he didn't think he should race on Sunday and that he should think very seriously about ever racing again. According to Watkins, Senna thought a long time before he answered. Eventually, he said that he couldn't not race. Watkins believes that Senna felt trapped by every aspect of his life and that he would have liked to step back. But Senna never had the chance. Good evening. The former world motor racing champion Ayrton Senna has been pronounced clinically dead after a crash at this afternoon's San Marino Grand Prix. Senna suffered serious head injuries when his car left the track and crashed into a concrete wall. He's being kept on a life support machine because of Italian law, but a spokesman for the hospital in Bologna said there was no chance he would survive. The world was stunned, and not just racing fans. Senna's death was a massive shock, not unlike the recent death of Kobe Bryant. And in Senna's case, he was at the peak of his career, and his final moments were captured live on TV and then replayed repeatedly. Each time it was played, it was impossible not to hope for a different outcome, but it was always the same. Ayrton Senna, one of the greatest racers of all time, was dead at the age of 34. Brendan Dunlop, who grew up watching Formula One racing with his dad, remembers the accident clearly. The day that Ayrton Senna died, that was actually the only time I've seen my father cry. And I think part of it was the shock of one of the greatest drivers uh, ever to die and the sadness of, of, of seeing the sport be as deadly you know, as it, as it once was. It was uh, my father had witnessed a lot of drivers that he followed and really looked up to pass away. And I think that it seemed like that was a, a period that was no more. And to see that happen to, to Aaron Senna was just tragic. The impact of Senna's death was felt around the world. To put it into perspective, the news of Senna's death overshadowed the first democratic election that was taking place in South Africa. The tragedy was the lead story on local TV news. Senna overshadowed the end of apartheid. In the hours after the crash, NASCAR star Dale Earnhardt acknowledged Senna after he won the Winston Select 500. He said Senna was a great racer and a great champion. In Brazil, where Senna was revered, all football games across the country were halted. One Brazilian TV commentator said everyone in the country would feel his death as if it were a relative. After Pele, Senna was the country's biggest hero. Fans gathered outside the Senna family farm, 70 miles from Sao Paulo, to express their sorrow. The president of Brazil sent a telegram to Senna's parents, saying the country had lost a champion. Most newspapers published special supplements on Senna's life and death, with headlines like Brazil weeps the death of a hero and goodbye Senna. Newspapers sold out quickly at newsstands in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, and extra editions were rushed to print. Three days of national mourning were declared to honor their beloved son. And on Wednesday, three days after the crash, Senna's body arrived in Sao Paulo. A fire truck carried his flag-draped coffin at dawn along a 25-mile route to the state legislature. Sirens wailed and confetti rained down from high-rises. People lined streets and overpasses. Major TV networks interrupted regular programming to show the arrival of Senna's coffin. And a police honor guard in red-plumed helmets 
carried the coffin into the legislature as the crowd outside chanted, Ole, Ole, Sena, Sena. The next day, a reported three million people lined the streets of Sao Paulo during Sena's funeral, which was attended by the president, along with a host of celebrities and drivers, including Emerson Fittipaldi, Jackie Stewart, and Gerhard Berger. Elaine Prost, Senna's longtime rival, was a pallbearer. After the shock of Senna's death wore off, the search for what happened and who was responsible began in earnest. Was it mechanical failure or driver error? Onboard footage showed Senna's car seemed to snap to the right while he negotiated the Tamborello corner. He was unable to course correct, which seemed odd for a driver of his experience. So from the start, it was suspected that there must have been some kind of mechanical failure. Eventually, it was revealed that Senna's steering column had snapped. He had requested that the steering wheel be repositioned before the race. So his mechanical team extended the steering column by welding and reinforcing additional length to the existing column. But here's the big question. Did it snap before the accident causing the crash or did it snap as a result of the impact? I'd say about 75% of fans believe Senna crashed because of a steering failure. And I can completely understand why they feel like that. But every kind of in F1 insider that I spoke to did dismiss that view. I think um, the more, more likely thing that happened was that Senna's car bottomed out. It basically means when the belly of the car, the floor of the car, touches the ground and you immediately lose all grip, basically. In a shocking decision, Italian officials laid manslaughter charges against Frank Williams, the man in charge of the Williams-Renault racing team, along with Patrick Head, the team's technical director, and Adrian Newey, chief designer. Three race organizers were also charged with manslaughter on the grounds the Tamborello corner did not meet safety standards. If found guilty, the six men could each face five years in prison. Typically, after an F1 death, the affected team investigated the cause of the accident with some outside assistance. Lessons were learned internally and then shared throughout the sport. The decision to lay criminal charges was unprecedented, and it threatened the very future of racing in Italy and perhaps the world. This move to dissect Senna's crash in court was something that few supported. Even Senna's family was against the legal process. Racing legend Nicky Lauda called it a cynical and stupid exercise. In February 1997, nearly three years after the deadly weekend, the trial began just two kilometers away from the Imola racetrack. Proceedings took place in a converted ballroom to accommodate the legion of journalists who were covering the case. The chief allegation against the team was that while Senna was negotiating the Tamborello corner, his steering column broke at the point where the modifications were made, which led directly to the fatal crash. But lawyers for the Williams team argued that the steering column had broken on impact when Senna's car hit the wall, and it did not cause the crash. The trial dragged on for nine months, and it included testimony from Senna's former teammate, Damon Hill, who said he believed that simple driver error most likely caused Senna to leave the track, not mechanical failure. 
The Williams lawyers also suggested that Senna may have been attempting to avoid a piece of debris on the track following the accident that occurred at the start of the race. Other explanations were also offered, including the fact that Senna's tires would have been cold after several laps behind the safety car, which had been deployed following the first crash. But a professor from Bologna University submitted a technical report that said the column had been badly welded together about a third of the way down and couldn't stand the strain of the race. He believed that the column was faulty and probably cracked as early as the warm-up lap. Moments before the crash, only a tiny piece was left connected, and that's why the car didn't respond in the curve. The judge, however, concluded that while the column likely failed, there was no conclusive proof that negligence on the part of the team had caused the accident. And so on December 16, 1997, Williams, Head and Newey were acquitted. The race organizer, circuit manager and race director were also exonerated. But that was not the end of the legal proceedings. Prosecutors pushed for and were granted a retrial of Head and Newey. However, in November 1999, an appeals court upheld the original verdict. The case then made its way to the Italian Supreme Court, which decided to reopen the case because of material errors in the original process. Finally, in May 2005, more than 11 years after Senna's death, Patrick Head, the team's technical director, was found to be responsible for the steering column failure, which was caused by badly designed and badly executed modifications. But, and this is a big one, because Italy's statute of limitations had run out, he received no punishment. As for Nui, he was fully acquitted. In 2013, Nui told BBC Sports that the accident still haunts him to this day. Before his death in 2012, legendary race doctor Sid Watkins, who was race-side when Senna crashed, said he thought about his friend a great deal. He constantly dreamt that Senna was alive and well, which he hated, because when he woke up, he'd have to face it all again that Senna was gone. It's been over 25 years since Senna's death, and there is still not a definitive judgment on exactly what happened that day in Imola. But most everyone can agree that that tragic weekend was a turning point for Formula One racing. The sport was forced to take a more serious approach towards safety. Around the 94 season, the cars were really loud, incredibly quick, and you could really see the driver working, and it was a lot harder for the drivers as well to control. You know, when they had like manual gearboxes, they, I mean, Senna, for example, he finished uh, Monaco races with a big hole in, in, his, in the middle of his hand from all the gear changes that he had to do, you know, um, like there's over a thousand gear changes, so, you know, massive blisters on, you know, just inside. That's not, I mean, his neck, you know, people, um, drivers were passing out, basically. You know, so there's a real physical sport back then. Since San Marino, just one F1 driver has been killed in a Grand Prix crash. Jules Bianchi died in 2015 from head injuries he suffered in an accident at the Japanese Grand Prix in 2014. The fact that there was 20 years in between Formula One fatalities is evidence of the sport's safety crusade after San Marino. 
The Grand Prix Drivers Association, which still remains in force today, was reformed on the morning of that fateful race with a view to improving safety in F1. Senna was named director, along with Gerhard Berger and Michael Schumacher, at what would turn out to be his last driver's briefing. Then in the late 90s, a number of steps were taken to improve the cars. Cockpits were lengthened and reinforced, the suspension was strengthened, and the wheels were attached to the car by tethers to stop them from flying off. In 2003, a head and neck support system was introduced, which is designed to protect the spine by attaching the helmet to the shoulders. And in 2018, the halo system was introduced on Formula One cars, which protects a driver's head during a rollover and from large pieces of flying debris like wheels. Many racetracks were also remodeled after 1994 by German engineer Hermann Tilke. They're wider and have bigger runoff areas on the curves and move fans further away. The sport we see today is very different. And as a result, some would argue less exciting. The 90s were a very competitive time. Uh, they were a very exciting time. <sighs> Obviously, um, it was very tragic to lose Ayrton Senna in the mid-90s. Uh, but after that, you had the rise of Michael Schumacher and Ferrari, and then into the 2000s with Mika Hakkinen. It, it, the, the sport continued to become more international. And I think as uh, more money came into the sport and uh, there was more money uh, around the world to, to bring the sport to more exotic places, in a lot of ways, you kind of lost that, that purity. And uh, it still remained elite, and it's, it's, still, uh, it's still a hot ticket in, in a lot of places, a very expensive ticket, including in Montreal. But I, I don't think globally it has the, it's been able to, to keep hold of the, the footprint that it had in the, in the sports landscape overall. The track in Imola, Italy, was changed following the deaths of Ratzenberger and Senna. A statue of Ayrton Senna was erected in a park across from the corner where he died. And fans still pin flowers and handwritten notes to a fence nearby. Senna's memory is alive in many other ways as well. The internet, for one, has allowed young fans who weren't even born when he was racing to watch the old races that made him a legend. A wide variety of books and films have also been made about Senna, including a popular 2010 documentary, which includes home movies and photographs from the driver's family and friends. It's an excellent behind-the-scenes look at his life, and if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you check it out. To this day, Senna's favorite soccer team still honors him by chanting his last name before matches. Schools in Brazil teach students about his life and racing career. And even local airlines have painted fleets of jets in the famous yellow and green colors of Senna's iconic racing helmet. After Senna's death, his family set up the Ayrton Senna Institute. It's a nonprofit organization that helps educate Brazilian children. The organization is run by his sister Vivian, and it's helped millions of kids with money raised from licensing Senna's image and from the production of a comic book series based on the driver called Senina, or Little Senna. And we can't forget about Roland Ratzenberger, a man whose death was overshadowed by a racing legend. Ratzenberger was buried in his home country of Austria. An inscription on his gravestone reads, he lived for his dream. A miniature race car and a helmet rests on top. Ratzenberger's parents moved into their son's apartment in Salzburg, Austria, after the accident, 
as a way of ensuring that his memory was not forgotten. The home was littered with racing trophies and pictures of their ever-smiling son on the fireplace mantel. His father, Rudolph, has no bitterness towards the sport. He says he's just happy that Roland achieved his dream to be a Formula One driver. Thanks for joining me for this look back at the highs and lows of the San Marino Grand Prix. And a special thanks to listener Christopher Small, who suggested this excellent topic for an episode. If you have an idea for a show, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can always email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to our guests, sports broadcaster Brendan Dunlop and author Ibrar Malik. His book is called 1994, The Untold Story of a Tragic and Controversial F1 Season. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, make sure you go back and check out some of our older episodes. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.